everyone to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. And we are live here. Welcome to the Disco Posse podcast. Once again, uh, thanks for listening. My name is Eric Wright, and I'm the uh, the the host today. Host as always, of course. This is uh, this is the uh, easiest way to find where I'm at. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Disco Posse. Of course, if you want to find out this and and other episodes and and more show notes and such, you can go to discopossepodcast.com. Ah, oh, that's a lot of Disco Posse stuff in there. But at any rate, today. I'm super excited because I love when a conversation begins on Twitter and it extends to the real world. Uh, as, a, as our pre-discussion, I said, uh, you know, it started as a nuanced conversation on Twitter. And that is, as, as my guest described, uh, an interesting oxymoron. Twitter itself makes, uh, makes for a tough spot to have really deep conversations and really explore some ideas. So I'm super excited today to welcome Ben Kehoe, Ben, if you haven't seen him online, is doing some really slick stuff uh, in cloud and robotics and everywhere. With that, Ben, if you want to introduce yourself, tell us what you do, where we can find you online, and then we're going to talk a bit about this chat we had on AWS Outposts and kind of like the my hypothesis on what it's doing. And you really kind of like brought up some neat points on it. Yeah, so I'm Ben Kehoe. I'm a cloud robotics research scientist at iRobot and an AWS serverless hero. And I, for one, am glad that Twitter uh, moved to 280 characters because I think, um, well, nuance is still difficult on Twitter. It's easier than it used to be. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny when I think of, you know, those days of of editing down tweets to like short forms of words that were in like text speak just to try and get something out. And, you know, at 280, I, the irony is I find more people are still doing these like, you know, one of N, you know, tweet yes. storms. <laughs> I, I'm always torn on like, when should you do that? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a blogger by nature. And so I always prefer to take it to long form. But the conversational style is super attractive to to social media. It's also super dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, you know, tweet threads are like the cognitive overhead or like the uh, the the emotional barrier to to writing a blog post is often like, oh, that feels like a ton of work. But then you're on Twitter and you're just like, oh, I can start a thread. I would love there. There should just be like tweet threader, you know, just like drop one vowel. That'll be a new startup, and you just like type in your whole your whole essay, and it will automatically thread it out for you. There's probably yeah, probably services out there that do such. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so beyond having the most wicked cool title, uh, you're doing neat stuff. And for folks that are listening, if you're not already digging into cloud, digging into what the value of serverless and, and these things are. Uh, you know, you've got some neat stuff that you're doing. And if we think about use cases, this is what I love about a lot of folks that I talk to that kind of came from the traditional virtualization audience is that there was this weird, like, oh, the cloud, the cloud, it's, it's, it's boo cloud. And we spent a long time, a few years ago, still kind of 
holding you know heels deeply in the sand to try and resist the movement towards cloud but then oh that's not over oh yeah that's true sure still still happening feverishly <laughs> it so i think that what happened was we kind of had this weird thing of like where's the industry going to move and so i had this hypothesis a few years ago I'll say two years ago, because I'm not going to be that, that, I'm not like Nostradamus in my predictions, but I had a, a not terribly bold prediction that I believe that AWS will put something in your data center that's going to let you run AWS native workloads right on your own backbone. And then of course the question is like, what's the purpose of that? And well, it seems, I don't believe that they operationally, it makes sense to keep it there, but what it is, it's a great way to kind of teach you how to do it. And then ultimately siphon those workloads out to the public cloud. And I kind of, I brought up like something along those lines on the, uh, you know, I won't quote it back. I should actually include a, a link to the, the conversation, but so maybe Ben, you want to talk about what your thought is on like, Start with outposts. You know what? What yeah. do you? What's the purpose there, and and what's the value? Well, I think I think we've definitely seen in the past couple of years, AWS make a very concerted effort to help people move uh, from from on prem into AWS cloud um, a lot more than they used to. Right? It used to be sort of here's all these cloud native services that you can use that you can build on, and maybe here's some connectors to help you with your stuff that's, you know, on-prem legacy from their perspective. And now it's much more, you know, database migration service and all of these things that are like, you know, how do we meet customers where they are to bring them up onto the cloud? When, but they still have to be thinking about how do, I, how do I move to the cloud? So I think that part of your prediction has definitely come true. Um, and now there's Outposts, which is um, AWS outside of... AWS, right? Um, but I think the distinction there is that a lot of, well, I think the question I have for you is, do you think the value that AWS would be getting out of AWS in your data center is uh, for customers who are worried about uh, vendor lock-in, who are worried about sort of control that AWS might have over them? Ah, yeah, this is the neat one. It's there, This is like the classic security question, like, oh, I don't want to move my stuff to the cloud because I'm worried about security. Like, kid, you got 1,400 people with physical access to your data center. Yeah. You're not worried about security. Like, you, if AWS messes up security or operational practices, they can lose thousands of customers. Oh, if, yeah. you, if you mess up, you, you maybe, if you're in your worst case scenario, you make the news, but your best case scenario, you just get over it. Uh, it's it's very different when they they've got a, a different outcome, and it's funny. Yeah. I, I I definitely agree that like there's going to be the they want to give you like get closer to how to how to operate, and they're going to put people in front of you. AWS I found has really jumped up in recent months and years uh, with like better training, better advocacy. Uh, you know, and that's the idea of like, hey, don't just say this is how you should do it. I don't want your old stuff. Uh, but kind of like with virtualization, it's, it was virtualization back in the day. We started off like virtualize your first server. Oh, neato. Okay. But then I've got all my legacy servers. And so we had this idea of P to V, so physical to virtual conversions, which was 
pretty much a fundamentally terrible idea. Like it just, <laughs> just did all the wrong things. And, and we're, we're doing that already in cloud. We're like doing, you know, V to C we're doing, you know, those kind of migrations. Yep. But again, if we think of, if it's an on-ramp to you saying, okay, now I'm in the cloud and I've got access to all these other services. Ah, so now I'm going to refactor versus as we know this, right? Right. You never refactor in place. You'd never have time. It's always a back burner project. So that, so my thought is to kind of go to the question, AWS is giving you a way to be innately comfortable with what the service offering they've got is, give you familiarity with their tooling, give you ability to have the sense of a comfort blanket that is in your data center, and then, you know, secure path to get it out, out into the cloud. And it really is, I, I guess I was joking, I said whenever you're partnering with AWS, it's, it's kind of like silence of lands, like come closer to the bars, mm -hmm. Clarice. You know, like it, you are really, they, they do want your workloads in their environment, it makes sense. But, so there's a weird overhead for them to like put it in your data center. That's, it's actually a big jump for, for them in the, the way they've run their practice. Well, it, it is a jump for sure, but I think the people, if people are interested in Outpost because they think that it will fulfill that sort of security blanket, um, not infosec blanket, but like, you know, make you, you know, that thing that you hold on to, to, to tell yourself that you're safe, um, uh, because it will be in your data center. I think they will find that they're dissatisfied with Outpost because the model is not, you know, if you look at uh, offerings from other cloud providers like Azure's on-prem stuff, that's really like, you know, here's the software, run it on your own hardware. And Outpost is literally like AWS is dropping hardware into your data center, is most likely um, doing everything but the literal hardware operations. So you're in charge of swapping out hard drives, but those hard drives um, probably have to be, you know, either, you know, some specific vendor that they've got for their hard drives. I assume you can't just shove your own stuff in there. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so um, I don't, you know, it's still very much uh, you are beholden to AWS in terms of, of the operation of it. What you do get out of it, and I think this is probably the primary reason that Outpost was created, is you do get minimum latency. Right. Ah, and yes. So, yeah, yeah. That the magic of true performance. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, if I was imagining, um, you know, if I've got a, uh, you know, giant container ship, thousand foot long container ship that's going across, you know, the ocean, and has a lot of systems that run inside it. Yeah, I'd like to not have to own the software and everything inside it. Um, could I use Outposts? to run on that ship so that I can still get all the benefits of creating software quickly and effectively uh, using systems that are resilient to all of these things, um, but be able to have it without an internet connection. Ah, yes, this is really cool. In fact, I was very recently at a, a mining user group for Cisco. Uh, and it was kind of funny that the, the use case, the, the discussion went towards like, Whereas outposts, you know, valuable. And, and the, one of the folks that was there was saying that he liked the idea of outposts because of just that, right? What happens if you have 
you know, network loss to the mothership. However, you want to run the same native workloads. So you want to have the same tooling. Yeah. And also, you know, once it gets connected again, you know, then it begins to recommunicate. And they're talking about like, obviously very remote stuff. So you're sitting in, in Argentina in a pit mine and yeah. there's just, there's no option. You know, it was, it was really amazing when you think of those things versus, you know, a lot of folks are like, ah, you got a giant data center. It's got a huge pipe, you know, pulling right back to your, you know, three, you know, telcos that you're attached to. Yeah. What if you're hanging off a cell phone tower? That's the same thing that's giving you MPLS yeah. <laughs> and your VPN at the same time. And if it, if it gets hit by a yak, then you, you lose everything. It's, there's very different use cases. And, and I love that. That's it. Like tooling, the, the container ships, also another one, cruise ships, uh, you know, they do yeah, need stuff. Sure. There's, that's a, better, that's a better example than the, than the container ship. I think many more systems running on it. And I guess what I should really do is I always, because this is not dated, right? Like, so if you're, if folks are listening to this in the end of 2019, they'll be like, these guys have no idea what Outpost is. It's <laughs> yeah. totally different. So Outpost is not actually a real available product except in early access development partners, right? Like it's yes. at the and time I, that we're recording, it's very different. <laughs> And I have not seen any of it. So this is all speculation on my part. Um, I think, and, you know, so there are those isolated cases and then there's the latency case, which is, you know, high frequency traders, right? You know, that don't want to go all the way to Northern Virginia from Wall Street. Um, I imagine that might also be um, a case for me as a roboticist, you know, I, so I'm a cloud roboticist, I'm interested in the ways that connecting robots to the internet can enable them to do more and better things. Um, but one of the things that's always been tough in that space is uh, how do you move, you know, there's sort of a, you end up being limited by the speed of light. Uh, so that darn you know, physics getting in the way all the time. Eh? <laughs> yeah, you get like a millisecond per 100 miles or something around that. And there's a lot of control on the robot that runs at very high rates, a thousand hertz and higher, um, where a millisecond delay is going to put you, you know, back a cycle and your control is going to, you know, go unstable. Now, on the other hand, if you could have um, that connection located nearby where your latency is in microseconds, um, that's going to change things there. Additionally, with uh, robotics, you have the situation where you know, in theory, I can move computation off the robot and into the cloud and make the robot simpler and cheaper. But if my connection to the cloud is unreliable, then what's the robot going to do when the internet connection goes down um, or is disrupted or whatever? Um, often the answer is, you know, I, well, I can't just stop, especially in industrial robotics. Uh, so I need to have the capability for like less smart autonomy on the robot. But if it's in your warehouse, right, if you've got your, or you're, you know, on your manufacturing line, you're wired into this outpost, uh, you can rely on that not going down. So then your robots can get smaller and cheaper. Uh, so I think there's yeah, a, a lot of those kind of situations. And it's, it's funny that we, we kind of get caught up as, you know, and I say we, I shouldn't say we, I'm like, as if I'm pulling you into this, this awful we, but you know, the industry's armchair analysts 
who are sort of quick to judge on on what's appropriate use cases. And we find that we, we end up in this, like first, it's a terrifying echo chamber. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's a whole Twitter conversation to itself. Uh, also just, yeah, we, we, we think in that, in that the reach is as extended as far as we can see personally. Uh, so it's, it's neat when you start to look at, like you said, like here's, you know, mining, cruise ships, you know, robotics, uh, we get into the Tesla situation, you know, where they just, there's lots of things where, you know, where's the processing going to happen? And it's cool. It's cool. And I, and I like this idea. And it's funny too, with that EC, like the EC2 is one of the, the primary services that's going to be offered. Yeah. Uh, and it made sense, of course, you know, bring, bring the IaaS virtualization because that's kind of like one of the biggest targets is, is getting those IaaS resources with low latency, you know, rapid access. So I think that's, that's the start. It'll be interesting over the course of the first while, you know, to watch it play out as what other services will kind of get bundled in there. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I should have done a little bit more deep research on you know, catching up on where things are at, but it, it's like database services were, were also another early target. Uh, of course, it's going to come wrapped with, you know, some, some, you know, functions. Uh, so there'll be some Lambda baked in. There are a few different things, but Lambda actually has, You've got on-prem capabilities uh, with Greengrass and a few other ways to, to sort of tackle that. And yeah, that's more well, device-oriented than that data center-oriented. Yeah, well, and so that's what's funny too. And again, this is where the nuance of conversation is like, I got to be when you when you take two services and you paste them together because they're from AWS, you know, they've got entirely functional different use cases. Yeah, uh, and. Again, another argument that people are like, oh, you know, everything's going, everything's going you know, Lambda or everything's going functions. Uh, and Simon Wardley, who's, uh, you know, uh, an interesting, interesting chap. And he kind of talks about that being the next wave. And people are hunting over Simon's Twitter timeline from 10 years ago to hope that he was wrong somewhere. Yeah. Because if you're not in, the, not in the functions as a service game, uh, you don't want to be the one that's going to be on the wrong side of Simon's predictions or others who think that, that functions. Maybe if you want to talk about like those really strong use cases, because especially cloud robotics, right? And, and, and yeah. robotics in general, where does that delineation sit for you? Yeah, well, I think there's one other note that I think will be is a important sign to look for in outposts, which is whether it becomes uh, completely self-service or not. So I think with like Snowball and and Snow Machine, the one or Snowmobile, the one where they send you a, a, a big truck, yeah, <laughs> semi truck. Um, I think for the most part, you can just sign up for that. I mean, you you know, it costs a bunch of money, but you know even if you're using it in a way that AWS is like, this is not the right way to do this, they're happy to let you do it if you insist on it. Um, I wonder with Outposts if there will be an approval process or if you will uh, just be able yeah. to say, here's you know, X thousand or million dollars, bring it to me. Um, or if they'll say, you know, no, we need to make sure that the situation you're using it for is going to be a good use of our resources. Um, and if they do go that uh, route, it's a it's a pretty strong signal that um, this has sort of very specific use cases in mind or utility in mind for AWS, rather than a broader way of of enabling on-prem usage of AWS. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It's funny because there's certain services that, you know, we're used to just like signing it up, you know, and, and so it's not like AWS Outpost is going to be like, all right, just, you know, fill in this, uh, fill in this request form. And if you've got Prime, you'll get it in 24 hours. Right. Like, but it, like it's, it's not, it doesn't just roll up to the back of your data center. There's going to be environmental requirements for it. That's, uh, it, it's a different beast in the way the service delivery is going to be. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. So, you know, uh, so functions, you know, and I yep. think this is the weird, again, as a lot of virtualization practitioners and a lot of folks, the two things that are scary because of confusion is, you know, blockchain and functions. Yeah. And I think both are, are interesting because neither will replace another thing wholly, but they are going to be incredibly important in how they play. And the blockchain separate. I just, sorry, that's just like yeah. a buzzword thing. I'm like, people like, but, but more blockchain or more, more Kubernetes. I'm like, okay, right. put that aside. Like functions as a service and in what Lambda is doing, very well, important. Yeah, and, and from my perspective, you know, Lambda functions as a service is a logical consequence of a focus on delivering business value through technology, right? That, that serverless is more of a mindset than it is a technology. Um, you know, how can I get rid of things that are not central to what differentiate me as a business? And one of the consequences of that is, you know, I don't want to write any code that is not business logic because it doesn't help differentiate me. And if you look at how you can accomplish that, the way, well, so you start with, okay, well, I want the OS managed. All right, we can do that. Um, I want the runtime under my Python code to be managed. Okay, well, how do we accomplish that in a way that isn't disruptive to me, that I don't need to be involved in that? Well, if all of my code is required to have a finite lifetime, then, uh, then when my code disappears, whatever it was running on can be updated. Well, how do you make... Uh, how do you run code that only ever has a finite lifetime? Well, it has to sort of be in res in in response to some sort of response or request or event, um, and then you give it some duration to do that response, and then it ends. Um, and functions as a service was sort of the, the first and I think most successful model for that. Uh, Google Cloud Run is sort of a a um, I think. Uh, and it's newer, but it's an intermediary step where it still says you're running a server inside that can handle multiple requests at a time, but the thing doing load balancing for you understands requests, is able to shut down your container when it knows it's not handling any requests. Um, so it's a you know, sort of intermediary piece. But pushed further is your code only handles one thing at a time, and so everything else is handled by, by the service. And so I think that's the, that attitude though, of I don't wanna run anything that isn't relevant to my business, can be adopted by anyone at any stage in the journey, right? So if you're entirely on-prem, you know, in just virtual machines, um, then you can start to adopt that mindset and move to sort of a next stage that helps you do less undifferentiated heavy lifting. Maybe that's containers, maybe that's virtual machines in the cloud, maybe that's outposts, but uh, it's sort of 
you know, I think of it as, you know, it's always a journey and there's no endpoint and functions as a service is not the endpoint either. We, we want to keep looking for, you know, more ways to run more managed um, services to keep our code requiring less maintenance to have less bugs in them so that we're operating primarily on business problems and not technology problems. The magical thing that we, we as, uh, as technologists and, and uh, knob turners often get lost in the like, but, but, but it's so cool. I can do this thing and like, Oh no, hang on a second. Yeah. What's the actual business outcome? When it's funny, when you talked about like the Google run thing, it's, so it's a weird irony in that they Google is, has kind of come with what you would believe would be a, a two year old approach to the problem, but it's kind of like ECS, you know, was like, Hey, we'll give you containers, but those containers run each on a VM and like, yeah. and it's been, it, so it was, it was a, a gentle abstraction. And then of course we got to EKS and then yeah. even further to Fargate. So it means you just like, just, Give me a, uh, you know, here's your, your cube config, you know, good luck and we'll scale yeah. as we go. <laughs> yep. And I think, uh, and Google's strategy now is, you know, some idea of if we're using Kubernetes, Google provides the ability to sort of go from on-prem all the way into the cloud, fully managed Kubernetes, um, to provide you so sort of that gentle on-ramp, uh, is the is their idea um i think the the danger is that it requires that everything then be built on kubernetes and all be container oriented so like one of the things i like about lambda is that they're not tying it to you know sort of docker oriented abstractions so when they wanted to add you know how do you bring your own runtime how do you add how do you combine multiple pieces of code in there. They didn't say, well, it's just bring your own container and you can build it however you want. Because AWS wants to provide that bottom layer and swap it out when they're doing their upgrades. And I want that too, because that, that's something I don't own. So they invented layers, which says, all right, well, here's how you get overlays in a, in a more managed fashion than containers can provide. Now, is it the best abstraction? I don't know, uh, but I think they're doing more than the other providers to break with existing paradigms to find the most effective ways to push all of this forward. It is, Which, yeah. The interesting thing as well is, you know, the, the win you get with having these managed offerings, it's also kind of urging folks to the, the other side of it, which is, so what happens when they suddenly say, okay, you're with us, but guess what, we're about to deprecate you know, Python two two six. Yep. And and so as of September one or whatever, like I figured there actually was a recent one where they're talking about the next deprecation cycle for for Lambda. Yep. And also like, ooh, oh no, right? So you can't just like speed up then slow down. You got to speed up and stay fast. Yes, and I mean, and so when you look at, you know, they're upgrading the version of Linux, and. Uh, for people who rely on, you know, not, um, you know, if you're writing stuff that's not in pure Python that uses libraries that are com they're compiled or running compiled code of any kind, um, you need to make sure that it compiles on this new version of Linux. Um, and the timeline that AWS announced was really short um, and it was probably driven by something that they were seeing um, 
hang on one second. Yeah, there, there's been Sorry. a couple of recent um, things that yeah. in a short time frame was the other one was where they announced like the removal of the S3 buckets, you know, uh, like cannot like the the change yes. in the canonical naming standard, and they just like kind of fired that up in a in a forum, and people were like, wait, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> they can't had to come back on that one, but you know, this this one I think definitely the the code. This is an interesting one, like you said, it's there's going to be a, a time frame that's well, and they and so AWS announced this time frame for uh, um for the Lambda execution environment upgrade. And it was, it was really short. And I think a lot of people said, this is too short uh, for, um, for us to have worked it into our development cycles. Because that's really sort of, I think the issue is you need enough headway from it to say, all right, it's going into you know the sprint after the next one. So it's not too disruptive to what we were trying to deliver to the business. Um, and we need some time to test that. And if, and if it turns out that something's wrong, then we may need some development time to uh, determine the remediation um, and then get it out there. And so I think AWS responded appropriately. And I think the next cycles that you see this in will be um, more aligned with, with what people want. But now people are saying, okay, well, they can do this at any time. But on the other hand, this means that you have to build in um, the time necessary to take care of these things, when if you own it yourself, it's much easier to let it fall by the wayside and say, oh yeah, we're on a three-year-old version of Linux that has X dozen security vulnerabilities because we're, you know, the business is never letting us uh, have time to, uh, to take a sprint to you know fix all these problems, or and it's not that you know one sprint would enable you to fix three years worth of tech debt, um, but when it's required because of the other benefits that you get from it, when you can point to hey look at all the operations that we're not doing, um, but you but you say well we have to do this upgrade um, because otherwise just our stuff won't run. You're gonna, you're actually better off overall, right? It's it's helping keep you, um, you know, sort of doing best practices that you should be doing on your own anyway, but are less likely to be able to make time for. And then I think it really raises the question of like, is your organization ready to to to, to are they ready? Like, are they ready to adopt this style? And it's funny. So the people that aren't won't be, and the people that are embrace it and i think it's it's kind of cool it's a good forcing function kind of like you know, if you look at somebody who's gonna run a marathon and like congratulations kid you 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 just embraced an, a, a hell of a training plan uh you know yeah. you don't you don't just suddenly go like i'm gonna just run you know 42 kilometers just because why not you know if you do you'll hurt yes. uh, if you suddenly embrace you know, just just jump on and do a bunch of stuff with Lambda and then don't think about the maintenance path and, and the continuous understanding and, you know, how do we maintain and understand like what's the future of that code, that environment wrapped around it, then you're going to, you're going to pay for it and, and you deserve your fate. So, you know, in a sense, it's like you get what you pay for because we, if we put in the operations around it, I find that people are moving, and adopting and they're yeah. they're changing their operations it's kind of like 
you know, whatever, DevOps. We, we lay down all sorts of buzzwords and whatever we want to call it. But those practices of moving faster, getting code to production, and thinking in the sense of code and, and delivering business value, once you're in that motion, you don't tend to go, like it's inertia. Like it, yeah. you tend to stay in that, that pace of motion. And you, even if you get, it gets more gentle, it's never going back to like quarterly releases. It's, uh, it, I, I don't find that people really swing the pendulum the other way. And ironically enough, like go out there, I would bet you if you just did a quick scan on a handful of, of suspect servers out there, there's probably still heart bleed vulnerabilities today. Sure. You know, like there's tons of stuff that, that's out there. And, and if anything, I think we all need to be forced. <laughs> well, and this, this actually transitions into another topic that we touched on very lightly, which is WebAssembly. And some of these other functions as a service models like Cloudflare is doing, where they say, you know, we're not building this around you know, sort of virtual machine isolation between customers. We're building this around V8 and its isolation uh, built for browser tabs, right? Um, and using WebAssembly, we can let you run any language that you want down there. Um, and I think uh, I see people looking at that and saying, WebAssembly is going to change everything. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, be able to run little bits of whatever language code we want all over the place. And that's going to be great. And I hear that and I say, oh, now I have, you know, three dozen different places where I have code that I need to maintain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not a free ride. <laughs> and that, you know, these kind of breaking upgrades are going to happen more often. Whereas, you know, and so for me, I, I, I look for less you know, sure, for my business logic, I need fully-fledged programming languages because it's of arbitrary complexity. But for a lot of places, I don't want the ability to write in Python. I don't want the ability to write in JavaScript. I want something that's relatively domain-specific um, that is going to be as managed as possible. So, you know, I write... Uh, VTL velocity templating when I use API gateway um, or if I use AppSync, it also uses VTL. And the nice thing about that is, you know, the runtime beneath that VTL is like highly specified. And so there's no chance for me to have something that's going to break when they upgrade unless they're literally changing the VTL version in a backward, it's incompatible way. Um, which because VTL itself is, you know, fairly restricted in what it can do. You can, you know, you don't generally introduce vulnerabilities in it by, um, by the way that you use it. And so they can upgrade underneath that um, for as long as they want. And so I think that model is going to be better for people overall. And, and the idea of more fully fledged general purpose programming languages in more places is actually going to be less productive than people think, even though it will, you'll get a sense of being productive because it's something you're familiar with and it's something that you're happy with and it's something that your IDE has good tools for. 
and all of these things. But if you look sort of at the big picture of how often you have to go back to it, how often you're introducing, you know, off by one errors in it, right. um, you know, all of these, all these little factors, while you'll feel really great about what you're doing in the big picture, you're, you're going slower. And then a lot of the stuff, it's funny, we talk about versioning, we talk about the, the risk of, of loss of, of, you know, control and then there's security and all this stuff. And, and I think you, you brought it up earlier is this thing around lock-in. And I, I often, I tell people all the time, like lock-in is real and it's great. <laughs> and we should embrace it uh, because you're you're already locked in. I've done a couple of you know uh, of talks with, and it's funny to like kind of put this in front of the audience and say like anybody here you know married or or in a in a long term relationship. I'm like, all right, so you you're down with lock in then, right? Yeah. Like, and you look, of course, people like they laugh and they're like, like well, obviously it's not lock in, right? You've you've made a choice and and you you. It's a good thing, right? The same, yeah. But you know, there's this trade-off to other stuff, which is, you know, we've accepted that. Okay, cool. So now you're going to run some stuff on, on AWS or you're going to move, like you said, where move to, to different higher order or domain specific, like where's the right place to do that yep. thing. And it's, you know, use cases and, and application of these practices will vary. And I think it should. But anybody that idea that, and I've, here's my favorite one, right? I'm going to move to Kubernetes because I want to get rid of lock-in. Well, I got bad news for you, kid. Yeah. <laughs> you just locked in. You, and they're like, but it's, a, but it's not really locked in. I'm like, it is, it is. Can you take it and move it to Nomad? No. Okay, cool. You're locked in. Yeah. Is it I, bad, right? I don't think it's bad. I think it's, 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 it's fine. I, I mean, I think Kubernetes is sort of standardized enough now and supported by enough different cloud providers that it, it definitely does provide uh, less lock-in than other, uh, other technology choices, right? And Google is sort of providing that by saying, you know, here's Ku Kubernetes that you can run on-prem, on GKE, right? You can use these managed products um, across with you know these sort of serverless things when they're running on Google, you can use them sort of not serverlessly uh, by using Knative. Um, I think uh, the other thing is, of course, you know, with the marriage analogy, um, a lot of people have historically been in abusive relationships uh, with enterprise software vendors. It's very true. Very and true. so they're, they're afraid of commitment. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, and that's really a shift of understanding um, the difference in those vendor relationships with, you know, sort of big public cloud providers. And I think, you know, cloud native startups are often, are, are often similar um, where, you know, you have to view AWS as a partner and not as a vendor, right? You're, you're both trying to accomplish something um, together. And I think that's very different from, you know, the history where you have to go through database license audits, right? Oh, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We've all felt that pain and license and, audits in general. And so if you assume that that's the way everything has to be, you're of course gonna be afraid of lock-in. 
But with AWS, you know, what's the worst case? You're paying the list price, right? Um, That's right. <laughs> all, the, all the prices are public. You know, I have, if anyone has had their prices, you know, raised on them beyond those list prices, they should be screaming bloody murder. Um, but nobody's out there doing that. And uh, so I think, you know, seeing when, when you're deep into a cloud provider like you are when you're, you know, sort of using lots of managed services and, and, and uh, therefore highly serverless, um, it's definitely a much more collaborative, cooperative, positive sum relationship. Um, but that requires that the, the customer, the user of the cloud platform has to approach that relationship with that attitude. Yeah, that's definitely the, again, it's, it's buyer aware, not beware. Yes. Like it's, it, I, I don't think we, I should, like it. we should fear it. It's, it's really, really cool. And, and I look at, so, you know, my own example is funny, like my velocity of adoption of new things changed because I had access to buy it for an hour and a half, like, and just yes. kick the tires on it. You know, I, I'm and just like, it's a, it's a kind of a silly example, but I, I've always run MySQL because like I'm like a zillion years old and my dad taught me to use MySQL because it was like, you know, that's, it was free. It still works. That's right. Did what I needed to do. And I kept thinking like, man, why am I, I'm watching all these people using Postgres and I really never just dabbled with it because I've always like went to what I knew. And all of a sudden I'm writing this, this uh, application for something and I was like, ah, oh, I should probably, you know, try it out in Postgres just to, to kick the tires on it. And for me, it was always like, oh, but then I got to stand up a server, make sure that I know about right. how it like, installs, whatever. I'm like, no, I don't. I'm going to spin up RDS and uh, done and done. And that was it. I'm a Postgres user and I'm, I love it. And so I found like it was functionally equivalent. It was faster with some of the testing that I did for some of the stuff I was doing. And if I'd, if I'd had to go through the effort of building and supporting and owning, like also I'm like, I don't care. It's just yeah. going to give me an endpoint. And that's it. I've got a managed endpoint and, and life is good. That was funny. Like even years ago when Andy Jassy was on stage for the keynote, it was probably like two years ago. And they, before that, I always said like, you know, get away from lock-in. And people always joked like, seriously, Andy, come on. Like yeah. you, you guys are locked in. But they changed the phrasing of it very carefully. They said like, you are you're not bound by any legal lock-in, right? Yes. You can shut down the entire environment today and you're, that's it. You, your next bill will be will be done. It'll be zero, right? Versus you're in an Oracle or a VMware situation and they're like, ah, no, sorry, kid, you've got a three-year ELA, which is actually four years because you've got an out year where you got to pay penalties. And like, right. and they do all sorts of buy and try stuff like, oh, but this will make your life better. Just buy this thing and then you can test it out. And like, that's it. I go to AWS. I wanted to, to dabble with, you know, Cognito all right, hold on, hold my beer. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and, cool. And you look at, you know, reserved instances are the one place where that doesn't really apply. Right. Um, and even there, AWS is like, okay, well there are, you know, some mitigation paths for that. If you have reserved instances that you realize you no longer want to have a use for, um, but you look at Google and what Google did was, um, says, the idea behind reserved instances is that if you have an instance for a long time, it should be cheaper. So we're just going to make that happen that way. So if you run a VM 
for a very long time, it starts to get cheaper. And I imagine this is built on machine learning, that they, can, that they have some prediction model that says, if you use it for this amount of time, you're, you're likely to use it for this additional amount of time. And so they've figured out that they can just price things like that and make those assumptions, build those assumptions into their infrastructure planning. And so you don't, you again, don't need to um, actually sign up for reserved instances. You just use everything like you, you want and the economics work out in your favor. Yeah, it's funny that it actually basically like at a percentage of usage in the month, it just prorates to this new, this new number. The one thing I find that, that's challenging there is predictability of, of pricing. And it, made, yeah. it, it doesn't seem like it's a bad thing, but if you're a CFO, and you're like, there, there's actually, I've, I've talked with folks in, in cust lots of customer environments and they'll be like, ah, you know, I need to know, I'd rather know I'm paying more yep. every month because I know exactly what it is and I can predict the, what my outlay is going to be instead of variability, which is, it's weird that we're, that's where we've come to. It's the, the counting, uh, you know, practices are going to hold us back from adopting what Google yeah. has done. Well, and, uh, you know, this was as a hardware company that you know became cloud connected i we went through this at irobot where you know when you make hardware you know exactly what it's going to cost you know years in the future you know how many you're going to make you know ex you know you know exactly how much every capacitor on it costs all of these things and when we built our solution on aws or we were planning it right and we had some model of you know, how much the robots will access the cloud, how much data will be sent and everything, and how much, you know, how many missions, how many cleaning missions a user will run per week, um, all of which we didn't have strong data on, you know, from beta user populations and returns and things like that. But not having a history of connected robots meant we had very scant data on that. So it was all, you know, a model. And we went to the finance people to say, you know, and they say, how much is it going to cost to, to, to do this cloud application? We say, well, probably something like this. And that, that was a big adjustment for like, you know, the usage-based pricing, which for the sort of software side of things, you're like, oh, this is great. I'm just paying for what I use. It's serverless. But the predictability becomes uh, completely different, right? right? Because you're paying for what you use and unless you know your usage exactly, um, predicting it in advance is, is difficult. But of course, now that, you know, again, thinking about ways to accommodate all of this, you know, given that there are users that are willing to pay more for more reliable stuff, I imagine we'll see better, you know, uh, better pricing agreements or whatever it would look like to be able to use on-demand services that give you the operational characteristics you want uh, with more pricing stability, I guess. Yeah, when it's funny, this is also something that I think that came up in our chat uh, was there's a difference in like the economies of scale and operations. And that's why like we have to think differently, like does AWS Outposts have a long tail? Probably yeah. not in the way that most folks would think. They're not gonna grow there. At some point, in fact, it may actually recede. They may oh, increase the hopefully. services. Yeah, right, because that's, <laughs> that's the idea. And that the more we adopt as a, an industry services that are on demand, that are centralized, uh, then 
the advancements that happen in those things. That's why ultimately, you know, we, we joked about the container war, you know, even though yeah. we talk about OCI spec, we know it's where you're running Docker. Like right. we, we, when you're going to run container scheduling, look, I, I, I use all the different platforms. If you look at the algorithms and the scheduling, you know, mechanisms, Kubernetes is not the winner. Like it's not, yeah. it's, it, it is the VHS versus beta, but it's also going to be just that, right? That it's more widely adopted. So there's other engineering advancements that are going to happen at a pace and scale because yeah. of the amount of customers using it and giving feedback and developing in, in that ecosystem. So that's the, like the more we use AWS, the better it gets. The more you use, you know, machine learning stuff, the better it gets. But this yeah. is literally like, if you get a thousand people running X, then it, it's going to be better than, than 12 people running it. Well, and the advantage of serverless is, you know, you can run something and it gets better over time without you doing anything. Right. It's better and cheaper. <laughs> Yeah, when, and this here's the neat thing too is the I, however many years we can go back in, in the historical Twitter timelines of people are like, oh, that's it, this is it. It's the race to zero. Everybody talked about this race to zero with like IaaS pricing on cloud and storage pricing. Like, well, we didn't get to zero. We, we leveled off as it should. There's going to be yes. a plateau and, and, and it didn't make sense. You know? And of course, all the, all the analysts who are like, predicting all this stuff, they all sort of just like, oh, I'm going to go over and talk about this other thing. All right, let's not talk yeah. about why we were wrong. But like, it didn't make sense. It was, they were going to get to adoptable pricing, not zero. And there's going to be this floor where it's like, okay, what's the lowest floor that I can get to that I can get people on board? And, you know, Microsoft, AWS, everybody has these algorithms. They know like once a customer has so much spend in so many, in each service, they're a customer for life in, a, in effect, right? They know if you're running more things, they're going, there's a point where you're not going to, to shut it all down. It's not going to be like, oh, I've got 200 EC2 instances and then next month I'm going to have nine and then I'm going to go away. Like at some, at 50, they know you're, you're kind of all in <laughs> or they, yeah. they, they know those with the adoptions and the more we use it, the more we see that play out. Well, and, and if you think about from AWS's perspective, because of that, it's not the, you know, the, the strategy that they have is not, well, okay, once you're locked in, how do we raise, how do we get more money out of you by, you know, raising prices or, you know, forcing you to use services? It's okay. Now you're a customer. How do we make it easy for you? to use more and more things? How do we make more and more useful stuff to you so that you're going to want to use more and more AWS services? Yeah, it was funny. We, we also, again, a lot of people kind of blew back, you know, uh, um, saying that, well, once you're in, what's to stop them from, you know, jacking up prices again or whatever. And you're like, no, no, you don't understand. That's, that'd be silly to do so because they would evacuate their customer ecosystem. And so, so it's a, it's a fine balance. So obviously yeah. there's always going to be risk that they they've can... got much better ways of making more money from you That's right. by just giving you more useful stuff. That's right. Yeah, this is the, this is, it's like a, the gift that keeps on giving. I'm like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm going to get more things that I can use that I may pay a little bit too much because I don't use it the right way, but I'm probably going to learn and they're going to help me learn. And even more so they're actually coming to you and saying, 
you know, look at your trusted advisor, you know, yeah. Hey, guess what kid you could have, you could have done some stuff and it would have saved you a bunch of money. Uh, it's, right. it's interesting. And that strategy of saying, you know, these are the things that save you money, right? Doing things like glacier, doing things, you know, storage classes on S3 that lets you store stuff more cheaply. Um, making you a happy customer makes you spend more money overall. And I think, and so you see, you see that in a lot of places where AWS tries to help customers save money or spend less money knowing that that's a better sales tactic than lock in and, you know, thumb screws. That's right. Just go to the, what's the maximum percentage we can raise the price each year without losing? Like, no, no, let's, it, it's so much the opposite. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm excited and, you know, having watched it occur, I think the, the rest of the industry is kind of relaxing on it. Uh, we, the old joke used to be the cloud is always cheaper if you're willing to spend more, uh, yeah. you know, and, but I just look at, you know, I, I was big and I, I did a lot of stuff in the OpenStack ecosystem, which is still thriving, but in a very, very targeted use cases at yeah. incredible scale. So it didn't upend AWS and, and, but it wasn't meant to it. it and that's, what's funny too, is the, the analyst kind of said like, Oh, well, OpenStack failed because AWS wiped it out. And I'm like, well, not necessarily like it's, it's a telco play. There's a lot of neat, still tons and tons of use cases for it. AWS is, you know, I for one welcome our, our public cloud overlords. <laughs> so Ben, you know, if we, this has been great and I thank you very much, you know, like yeah, anybody that's, that's listened to this, you know, like these, this is the food for thought as you think about changing the way you, you use technology because it's going to get better and you're going to get better because of it, it getting better. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're seeing an, an incredible time. I'm lucky, you know, I've, uh, I've been around long enough and learned to think in, in life sprints that like, it's always getting better. It's always going to be really wild. Uh, and we're going to see stuff shave off the back. We're going to see deprecation. We're going to see a little bit of pain, but we're going to get there. We'll get faster. Uh, and, and it's, it's a joy to, to share, you know, discussions like this and learn you know, outside of an echo chamber, you know, of my own yeah. world, you know, what, what are other folks looking at and, and why is it valuable to them? So this is good. So Ben, again, if you want to just reintroduce yourself, let us know where folks, if they want to interact with you, where they can uh, catch up with you uh, online. Yeah. I'm Ben Kehoe. I'm a cloud robotics research scientist at iRobot and an AWS serverless hero. Um, I can be found on Twitter. Um, Ben one, one Kehoe. And, uh, uh, I have articles on medium. Ah, yes. Nice. There you go. A classic example, WordPress or medium, make your yeah. choice. Right. So oh, this is cool. Again, Ben, thanks very much. Uh, and for folks, of course, you know, uh, you know, keep watching. We'll, we'll see if you're catching this one on a replay in a few months, you you're going to be comparing as the real thing. It'll be good. You know, over time, I'd love to catch up again in future, especially as you look at some of the neat new things you're doing. Cause uh, I'm a fan of, of your, your company and, and the work you're doing. I, I just love to keep in touch. Great. All right. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you. You're listening to today's Cool Palsy Podcast.